0: and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Maya Bandari. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. And to find out more about it, you can head to crawford.anu.edu.au. And my co-host today is Sue Regan. Welcome, Sue. Thanks, Maya. So it's National Science Week. And as we speak, thousands of events are happening around Australia, celebrating all things science and technology. But how much of a place does science have in public life? Australia no longer has a minister for science. The quality of our education was recently ranked third last out of 41 high- and middle-income countries. And on top of that, trust in authorities is failing across Western societies. Or, as UK Leave campaigner Michael Gove notoriously proclaimed, People in this country have had enough of experts. So what is the place of science in the court of public opinion? How can scientists recapture the value of fact in an era of information overload and fake news? Today we pose these questions to four experts across the disciplines of science.
1: We're here with Professor Eleanor Huntingdon, Dean of Engineering and Computer Science at the Australian National University. Eleanor's research interest is in experimental quantum optics, Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you. Also with us today is Professor Mark Howden, Director of the ANU Climate Change Institute. Mark was a major contributor to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Reports for the UN, uh, for which he shares a Nobel Peace Prize. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Sue. Our next guest is ANU Professor Susan Scott, uh, who specialises in gravitational physics. Uh, She was part of the team behind the Breakthrough Discovery of Gravitational Waves winning awards for the way the science was presented to the media. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Sue. And our final guest is Dr. Erin Newman. Erin is a psychology researcher at the ANU, and she focuses on um, distortions of memory and cognition. Uh, Her research looks at how people can succumb to truthiness um, using feelings and pseudo-evidence to decide what is real um, instead of drawing on facts. Welcome, Erin. Hi, Sue.
0: Before we get into it, just a reminder that we're really keen to get your thoughts on this or any of our other pods. So reach us at Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society or just drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And after the discussion, we'll be back to discuss some comments from our articles and other pods. But for now, let's hear from our scientists. So, Eleanor, you are leading a project to reimagine engineering and computing for the 21st century. But what's wrong with our current ways of approaching engineering and computing, and what difference does this project hope to make?
2: Well, that's a, um, a big question with a, with a long answer, so I'll try not to make it that long. <laughs> uh, I guess the, the point is that if you take a look at the major trends in our world now and what's coming up, um, what you see are things like climate change, sustainability, urbanisation, Aging populations, wearable technology, software's going to eat the world. And of course, we're all worried about killer robots escaping into the wild, or at least that's what hits the news. Uh, and there's a thread that runs through all of that. It's about big, complicated systems of systems that have people in the middle of all of that. And uh, the traditional engineering disciplines have uh, done very well for a very long time uh, in bringing together people, technological systems, and science. But if you look at what's going to happen and come up in the future, then one of the things that we are going to need to really concentrate on is having engineers and and computer scientists who understand people at their most fundamental level in order to be able to to design the the kinds of systems that will have these wet squidgy things called people in the middle of them uh, in the future.
0: And you're talking about the future, but what can policymakers do to make sure that they're keeping up with the massive social and technological changes that we're experiencing?
2: Wow, that's also a good question. Um, so so I think the way to think about this is that uh, we don't necessarily need to um, have everybody streamed as being an engineer or a scientist or a policymaker or – a teacher or whatever it is, we're actually going to need to have a think about things as a collection of skills. And those skills are what are going to allow us to achieve what we want to achieve uh, in our in our world. And that means that uh, we've got to start breaking down these these artificial barriers between humanities and social sciences skills as well as the science, technology, engineering and math skills.
1: Mark, I'm going to turn to you now. Um, you've worked for 30 years on climate change. Um, why do you think climate change science is so contested, so publicly contested, compared perhaps to other areas of science?
3: Like that's a fascinating question, Sue, as well. I think part of the story is that uh, there's a lot of incumbents. So, that, so there's a lot of money riding on things such as the current debate in Australia on energy. And, uh, and so we've got very big industries uh, with a lot of political sway, and that's part of the picture. Another one is that, uh, in a sense, everyone owns climate and owns the weather because they experience it every day. They have some sort of mental model about how this works. Uh, and to some extent, um, that ownership then comes with a, a knowledge base uh, that then can be used to um, compare with the knowledge base of the experts. And sometimes, uh, you know, the, um, I guess the dialogue uh, comes about that uh, the experts don't have any idea, and so therefore people preference their own knowledge base in those circumstances. So I think there's, there's a few, and there's many more things that come into play, I think, Uh, But those are just a couple of the ones at the moment. But I think one of the things that's really important is to actually connect the science with the day-to-day lived experiences and also the prospects that people have, so it's the aspirations they have. Uh, so just like Eleanor was talking about uh, getting engineers who understand uh, the people, is that within the climate science uh, area, I think it's really important not to put climate at the centre of the diagram, as it were, but actually people and their aspirations and values at the centre. And so you start at what people want to achieve, and then you work out to find out what how climate and climate change may influence that.
1: And do you think as people start to experience the impact of climate change more that they will um, be more accepting of climate change science?
3: I think that's part of the picture. But uh, the Australian public, for example, is very accepting of climate science on the whole. So three quarters of Australians want. Uh, more action on climate change. Uh, Two-thirds want a price on carbon Uh, and uh, the rating of climate change as a national threat keeps on going up. So the last Lowy poll had rated third um, uh, there. So so there was a dip a few years ago when the politics essentially got in the way but now that's out of the way. Uh, So what I think you're seeing is that uh, the public are actually saying yeah, this is a big issue um, and we want to understand it and we want action on it uh, but they're not always getting that.
0: Now, I'll just turn to Susan. So you were part of a global collaboration that proved the existence of gravitational waves, something that was first predicted by Einstein a century ago. And you helped communicate the story reaching millions of people. But why was it important to present this discovery to the public?
4: Well, it was very important because you have to remember that this uh, project has like a 30 year history behind it. And in those 30 years, we've been trying to get the message across that there's this incredible prediction of Einstein's theory, namely ripples in space-time. But it's very esoteric for the average person. And a lot of people thought that they might not exist. And a lot of other people thought we might never detect them. So it's very, very hard in those circumstances to to get the information out there and to, to get support for your project. Um, particularly, you know, funding support and, and things like that. But once we announced detection in early 2016, that was an avalanche of change for us because the media was uh, excited. The general public loved it. They have an ongoing fascination and uh, adoration for black holes. And this event brought together two black holes smashing together, generating ripples in space-time, which we detected. And that was the start of a incredible fascination of the public um, for gravitational waves and what we were doing. And now, of course, everything has changed as a result of that. Uh, shortly after the announcement, uh, we had a National Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery funded, um, by the Australian Research Council. Now, that has been a huge change for us. We'd, we've been trying for 20 years uh, off and on to obtain one of these centres, but it's very hard to get you know, like tangible support when you've got nothing to show for it, uh, so to speak, in terms of results. And once the, the detection took place, then everything changed in terms of public opinion, public interest, and indeed public su- um, support and policy.
0: Yeah, you're talking a lot about how there is such a big a huge amount of public interest and the level of interest in the discovery of gravitational waves seems to suggest that, you know, that this large appetite does exist for scientific knowledge in general. Has your experience given you any insight into how to take advantage of this appetite and how to improve scientific literacy among non non-scientists?
4: Yes, and I think my personal approach to this has um, you know, shaped my thinking in that Uh, I found that what I do uh, to keep up on scientific developments generally, you know, outside of my own field, is I love looking at these short scientific videos put online, you know, like by the Academy of Science and so on. And I find that I can spend a, a short period of time and get something quite informative and it keeps me abreast of developments. And, you know, one thing I've become interested in is Plastic in Oceans, And I've found that the number of videos and things put out on that in the last five years has been enormous. It's had a big impact on my own thinking. And I think it's actually had a very widespread effect on uh, policy by, you know, large enterprises like supermarkets, initiatives in uh, remote parts of the world. And I think it's growing. And eventually it will have a major impact on the the real cause of most of that plastic.
0: So you're saying try and make science short and grabbing.
4: Yeah, keep it brief. Um, try to explain it just at a very basic level, but keep the interest and keep it short. Yes, because people don't have time to to watch one hour videos about what you're doing. They only have two minutes. Yeah, that's a good point.
5: Aaron,
1: um your research looks a lot at how flawed the uh, human mind can be. Um, can you talk a bit about your findings? Um, And maybe say something about how people come to believe and even remember things that aren't true.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the key sort of take home messages from this body of work is that when people are trying to decide or establish whether something is true, they often have this perception that they're really drawing on general knowledge. So they're retrieving something that's in their brain or something that they've read, and that's helping them to figure out whether they believe something. But across numerous studies, the robust finding is that people are usually drawing on their feelings to establish whether something is true. And when I say feelings, I'm meaning things like a feeling of familiarity or a feeling of clarity because something's been explained at a level that people really understand. So I guess what I'm saying is that when people decide whether they believe, they're really making an intuitive assessment. And so are
1: there more effective ways of communicating science beyond um, presenting the best possible evidence and hoping that appeals to people.
5: <laughs> there, there are, and I think one of the one of the things we try to do as scientists is um, correct misconceptions, and that's a really tough thing to do. So once misconceptions or misinformation takes hold, it can be really tricky to unravel. Um, and I think. One of the most popular approaches to, is to use this sort of myths versus facts strategy where you say, here is the myth, now here's the fact and here's the, all, all the evidence that you should care about. Um, while it's appealing from a communication perspective, it actually doesn't work very well. So what we know from, from the work on this is that what happens is that all you're doing really is making the myth more familiar. And the myth actually ends up sticking more than the correction because the corrections are often very complicated. So it really gets back to this idea about spreading science in a really accessible, simple way. And that's, it's, it's all part of the communication strategy and persuasive communications. So
0: Susan before was talking about how in order to make science accessible, we have to make it quite short, quite grabbing and very brief. But to what extent is that limiting the amount of information, the amount of factual information that we can be putting across? And is that really the most effective way of providing information to the public? Perhaps Erin, you would like to discuss this?
5: Yeah, so I think there is a very interesting tension. So if you look at the research on effective communication styles and if you look at the research on people's understanding, human memory, how people come to believe, all of that research suggests that scientists should be putting out a very simple message. They should be repeating a simple idea and getting a simple, clear message across. As a scientist, this is an uncomfortable approach Um, when it comes to communication, because if you're getting a very simple message across, you're often not covering some of the nuance and some of the sort of alternative explanations that are available. And I think this has come up a lot when you look at climate science. Um, So on the one hand, you have the best communication approach. On the other hand, you have the scientist who's sort of uncomfortable with navigating through this issue of having a clear message that's also not covering some of the nuance as well.
4: Yes, and I, I think that's right. I mean, you... I think it's important to get the the message out there briefly um, so that the the person listening, the, the member of the public, has a reasonable understanding of what's going on. I think it's important to convey the excitement. I think it's incredibly important not to oversell what you've actually done. And I think there is a bit of a, a trend out there, um, you know, not everyone by any means, but some scientists, some places in the world are overselling their achievements and the work they're doing. And I don't think that does a service to the science community generally or to the general public. I mean, in the interest of getting, you know, factual information out, I think we have to be very careful that we portray it very clearly as to, to what we've done, even if we leave out a lot of details, which we, we need to. But it's very important in the the long term, if decisions are going to be made about the science that we are doing, that we are not Overselling our projects.
2: Yeah, and to add to to Susan's commentary there, I think um, that's actually one of the key places of for the role of an expert these days. Because uh, in order to uh, cut away the details and still be correct, you need to know your stuff very, very well. Mm-hmm.
3: And I think when policy people talk with scientists, what they actually want is synthesised information. They don't necessarily want the terabytes of detail. Um, They actually want to know – the sort of answer to the question is, are you really confident – That this is the way it is, and these are the consequences, Mm -hmm. and that's the really thing—the thing they really want to know about—is how confident are we when we synthesise all the information that we have?
0: Yeah, and I think it's also a question of why is it important? Like, why do I need to know? Why do I need to care about this? So, yeah, you're right. I think you're choosing between short and sweet or being factual and being accurate. Um, We're really lucky today to have. Um, for guests from such different um, aspects of science. And just taking a look at science in Australia as a whole, it seems to be in a poor state. You know, we've had headlines warning of a shortage in young people choosing STEM subjects. And at high levels, many researchers feel that they live in a post-docalypse of poorly paid and insecure employment. We need only look at the CSIRO, which has endured years of job losses and budget cuts. So what is going on and are things really the sty in your fields? Perhaps we can start with Mark.
3: We, what we've actually seen over you know, a long period of time, to some extent, is the corporatisation of government across the globe. And and what that's done is it's collapsed the uh the timeframes for making decisions from what governments should be looking at, which is multi-decadal through to multi-year, um, down to often just the election cycle. And and with that has become a, a lack of preparedness in my view uh, to invest in the long term and and science is long term. And so whether it's looking at gravitational waves or whether it's looking at building up engineering schools or understanding the psychology of the human mind and how we make stories out of nothing, um, uh, that takes a long time to figure out and we need to invest in that um, so that we're actually better able to make good decisions. So I, I actually think that... Um, that's part of the picture. We, we, we're seeing no longer to provide value in the using the metrics that governments and industry and others are using to evaluate value into our society. And I think that's pretty sad. It makes us poorer as a people, um, and it makes us less able to deal with an uncertain future.
4: And Susan, you were nodding your head a fair bit. Did you have something to add? <laughs> well, simply, I mean, the gravitational wave detection project was such a long one, You know, 20, 30 years. And we really suffered by the fact that the whole mentality in, in recent times has been, we need near-term results for funding. Um, you know, you're not going to get funded unless you can, you know, have the promise of producing something in the next few years. And so that really discourages the, the long-term vision, the, the big, deep results that, that people can go after, that teams can go after. Um, and we, we managed to, to get by. Uh, but it was, it was difficult, um, you know, in, in various ways. Um, and I think that, you know, really we need to think about the, the combination of both short-term, near-term results and the big picture, long-term results so that we have a sort of good balance because in the end, some of our biggest achievements will come from the very long-term results.
0: Eleanor, how do you think you would get more young people into STEM?
2: Yeah it's it's an interesting question and and in fact um one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is is that uh the acronym stem has um started to become a word and it's actually being used as a synonym for science and the thing about stem is that uh the science and the maths bit are about discovery for its own sake um Technology is about building things and engineering is about solving people problems, building technology using your mastery of science and maths. Now, what that means is that every one of those letters comes with a different set of motivations and a different set of aspirations and sometimes even different career paths. Uh, and so, and until we unpack that a little bit, I think we're trying to sell something as a monolithic block to young people in a way that um, is actually even less comprehensible than one might seem, particularly in a world where there's just so much choice and so much career choice. And while that's um, potentially exciting, it can also be really quite overwhelming. Uh, and so to think in terms of uh, the skills that you might need to develop um, a life journey, rather even than talking about a career to the skills that you need in order to develop a life journey. I think that's probably a, a, a more effective way of having, having that conversation these days.
0: Yes, yeah, so we need to unpack that STEM acronym a little bit more
2: Indeed. and dissect yeah. it
1: more for young Indeed. people. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to s- stick with the STEM acronym for now. Um, uh, less than a, a third, I think, of university STEM graduates are women. At a time when Australia is, uh, I think, trying to push for science, research and innovation as a country, uh, we're clearly missing out on a whole lot of talent and opportunity. Um, in each of your respective fields, um, would you say things are, are improving in this context? Um, or, and could you say something about what's the, the one thing that we could do better? Mark, would you like to go first?
3: Within the the climate change domain, which is which is extraordinarily broad, um, it's very patchy. So, for example, we see quite a lot of uh, funding within Australia going into the energy um, systems. Uh, it's highly political. People are looking for solutions, uh, and uh, and there's a huge amount that could be done. So, we've got new technologies which are looking for um, to be implemented. Uh, across the board, uh, and we've got a, a really substantial push from the Australian public uh, in terms of that, and so we're we're hungry for uh, renewable energy both on our roofs um, and you know, in our grid, and and so so in that domain it's actually uh, very positive. So there's plenty of plenty of funding, plenty of uh, work, but but oftentimes in the applied domain rather than the in the basic research domain. And so we're not putting the effort into, say, the next generation of battery technologies and that type of thing. So... Um, but within other domains uh, say within climate change adaptation so that's responding to climate change uh, uh, that's been subject to really strong sort of political headwinds and the output of that community is more than halved um, over the last few years simply because of that and so um, in that in that area um, the the sort of prospects for uh, for research activity uh, and for new jobs is actually extremely low and so uh, if we're looking at uh, the decision Decisions that young people make. Uh, I, I respect um, the, the ability of young people to actually make good life decisions in many cases. And uh, and they're probably making good decisions in the sense of avoiding a problematic career path and looking for one that's actually much more stable, much more rewarding, and has, in a sense, much greater uh, social return in the sense you're a, you're a more valued or sort of uh, seen to be a more valued member of society.
1: Mm. Eleanor, what's uh, your experience of this challenge of getting more women into science?
2: I, I guess I'd start by saying that diversity in in the engineering and computer science disciplines writ large is actually um, a big issue. It manifests itself most most explicitly uh, around gender because it's it's kind of an obvious thing. To measure, but it's it's more than that. We um, uh, do tend to to operate under a very particular set of stereotypes, and that does tend to mean that we we um, attract a self reinforcing. Cohort of people, within that, um, if you look at the uh, the gender statistics uh, in a whole bunch of disciplines, as well as things like wage gaps and things like that, um, wage gaps and gender statistics in everything bar engineering and computer science have closed very significantly over the last little while. In engineering, um, it's again it's very patchy, just like um, uh, Mark's experience. So there are some engineering disciplines that are doing. Really, very well in diversity along all the dimensions and some that are simply not, and unfortunately, computer science is um, also not doing well uh, and so that's one of the the pieces of work that um, I think we're, we're all going to have to focus on. It's um, the discussion in North America and in the United kingdom is is far more advanced than it is here, which is interesting, uh, and so we have a lot to learn from other parts of the world
4: And Susan, what about in physics? Well, we have similar issues to engineering in that in gravitational physics, there are very, very low numbers of senior women in particular. And one of the big effects of that is that when we have students coming through, um, they see that there are very few senior women and it's very off-putting for them. They have to ask themselves questions like, you know, is it hard for a woman to survive in this field? What are my opportunities? Should I do something which is an easier path? And so this has been a major issue we've had to look at. Um, Our numbers are probably worse in Australia than they are in America in this field. And since we've had our um, Centre of Excellence, Ausgraab, which is only a year or two old, we've actually really been proactive about trying to do something about this. And what we've done since we had to um, appoint a whole number of new postdoctoral fellows, uh, we've made an absolute effort to ensure that we're approaching 50% of all our post-doctoral, postdoctoral fellows are women. And we believe this will have a major flow on effect because our students that are now coming into the system to do PhDs and so on see this and they see it as a, a much more normal situation and that there is a way ahead, which is shown to them by this cohort of uh, women at the postdoctoral level. And I think this will have a a long-term effect. I think this will flow on up the system, Uh, but it needed something cataclysmic to sort of happen somewhere along the line. And we chose that level because we had the ability to do something at that level in terms of finance and so on. And I think it's already having a a really big effect and it's changing the culture of um, our work. Um, There are many more considerations now about, you know, family issues, you know, people with young children about mental health issues, about inclusiveness, um, of all types of people. Um, And I think, you know, just in a year and a half or two years, there has already been a very positive change in our culture. Erin, you were nodding a lot there. Yeah,
5: yeah. I identify with a number of of the issues raised here. Um, In psychology, we actually have kind of an interesting issue. So we have a lot of women enroll in undergraduate um, degree in psychology. The problem there is retaining those people into graduate work and then positions at universities, and research positions in particular. Um, And your discussion about having accessible mentors and role models, people that you can identify with at that graduate level, is a big deal. Um, In psychology, more generally, what you see on an international front is that now at conferences, particularly in cognitive science, Um, you see groups like Women in Cognitive Science that are present at all the international conferences. And those meetings encourage people to talk about issues that relate to what it's like to be a woman in this field and and how people have jumped various types of hurdles. Um, The other thing that I've seen that's worked really well is now there is this sort of shift in, um, making available scholarships for people who need um, help in terms of looking after families while they're away at conferences, and that's new. It's two thousand and eighteen, and that's now happening. so
1: do any of you have any other ideas on
4: what could be done better? Susan, well, just one sort of small thing but it makes a difference is that now we sort of call out for international conferences if there's a a uh, mm-hmm. plenary speaker panel chosen, which is entirely male. And it happens surprisingly often in our field. And this is now looked at and it's scrutinized. And, you know, it's pointed out to them and said, you know, this is not good enough. Please, you know, make an effort to adjust it. And so that that's just one thing. But all these things add up. And women, young women in the audience, students, postdocs and so on, they see that there are, you know, several women giving plenary talks. And that's very encouraging for them.
0: Um we're talking a lot about diversity in terms of gender diversity in mm. science. But I just wanted to bring that back out a little bit. How can we get science and all of the other fields working together to address these sorts of problems? Eleanor, I you want to start? Uh
2: yeah, so so um before I actually answer your your direct question, um there is diversity along a number of dimensions, and uh I think it's it's important to point out that uh, Australia is so far behind the UK and North America that they're starting, they're talking about a whole bunch of other dimensions of mm-hmm. diversity. So they're talking about uh, um, uh, socio-economic background, racial background, cultural background, you know, all sorts of things in a way that, that we are we're not yet. Uh, and my preference um, would be if we can to to leapfrog all of that and actually just talk about diversity in it's full dimensionality, because we will actually get to a more inclusive uh, place to study and work, I think, faster if we do it that way, Um, because it will force all of us to think as laterally as we possibly can. Um, So I'll just get off that soapbox now. Um, In terms of interdisciplinarity, um, one of the things that um, uh, I frequently say is that any problem that's sufficiently complicated to solve will inherently require multiple disciplines to solve it. And I think Thinking about it in that way is probably a more effective way of thinking about it because interdisciplinarity for its own sake is just for its own sake. So, you know, a great big problem like climate science requires multiple disciplines to solve it. So they're they're not collaborating just for the fun of it. They're doing it because they want to solve a great big complicated thing. And I think we talk if we talk in those terms, we will actually um, get to somewhere a bit more interesting. In practical terms, IBM coined a concept that they call the a T-shaped person. So think of a capital T, uh, and what that means is that you have deep expertise as well as sufficient breadth to be able to collaborate across disciplines. And I think that's a really, really nice way of thinking about it because that means that individuals, teams, groups. Um, problems all can be thought about in that way, and it means that uh, instead of everyone being an I, where you can't collaborate, or everyone being a hyphen, where there's no deep expertise, what you actually want is T.
0: Yeah, I really like that. And I guess my other question, just following on from that, how many problems, such as you know climate change and even you know the whole cybersecurity field, how much of that is just being dumped on science and isn't really being <laughs> You know, explored with more interdisciplinary expertise. Mark, did you want to take that one?
3: Uh, I, I, I can deal with a couple of things here. Um, one, one is I think uh, the, the way science is rewarded um, really matters and we tend to reward uh, the old disciplinary silos. So it's still easier to go down a disciplinary pathway than it is to go down an interdisciplinary pathway. So just in terms of journal publications or the numbers of publications and citation rates, etc., it's easier just to be a disciplinary scientist. So um, whilst our award systems uh, encourage people uh, to just be siloed, be an I type of person, um, we will get people being on types of persons. And, uh, and so we need to be thinking about institutional redesign um, to solve these things. It's not just about the scientists or the researchers generally. Um, but but I, th- I think uh, we we also need to think um, beyond science. And so I think we need to sort of move into the what we call a participatory action research or co-design sort of domain. And, and that's what we now call transdisciplinary action, where it's interdisciplinary research teams, Plus um, the stakeholders and seeing seeing the stakeholders as a legitimate part of the research activity and and this isn't new it goes back to the nineteen forties uh, this whole area of work was was uh, developed because people saw that there were voices which were being excluded from uh, discussions and there was knowledge which was being excluded from solutions and so um, so so it's not new um, but we don't necessarily do this consistently and not again nor are the reward systems or signals there for people to do this consistently. But if we want to engage in policy, if we want to engage in sort of industry solutions or um, be part of uh, community discourses with with, uh, sort of NGOs and similar groups, um, seeing them as a legitimate part of the team, the research team, it adds resources, it adds knowledge, it adds strength, it adds implementation pathways because they own the science, they own the issues, they own the problems. Uh, and, And there's a lot to be said. It's just Often it's a more uh, resource-intensive activity, so you've got to put extra effort and time into this, um, but the rewards can be great. Mm,
0: And just to bring this back to policy, what do you think scientists should be doing to make their voices and their opinions heard to policymakers?
4: Well, one thing I'd uh, like to mention is the Homeward Bound program, which is an international leadership program for women scientists, and both Eleanor and myself have participated in that. And I actually think it's a it's an awesome program because it it covers and touches a lot of these things uh, the first one of the primary objectives of it is for women scientists to have a voice in addressing the really big problems of the planet, the health of the planet, the future of the planet. Um, and we feel that you know along with some other groups and so on, but women in particular have not had a very central voice in this, and this program aims to help these women to train these women, to bring them together to actually have the skills and confidence to to take a part and have a voice in these decisions. And the, the other great benefit of the scheme is that it puts these women together um, for three weeks on a ship, um, out of touch with the rest of the world. And these women from different places, different continents, and with different expertise actually sit down and talk together for three weeks. And this is forming some amazing... Um, alliances, relationships to do with these issues, to do with these problems, which are going somewhere. There, there's real progress being made. And, and you have the dual benefit of, you know, women having a part and a voice in it, but also the expertise coming from a whole range of different science and, and policy making backgrounds. So I think that is a very promising initiative. And obviously, uh, I would like to see a lot more of these type of things taking place.
1: I had one, one further question. Um, you know, as a, a public policy expert, um, I think we often, as, as policymakers, think that it's incumbent upon us to understand a bit about science. I wonder if scientists feel that they should understand the policy world more. Do you feel that? Well, I, I, I'll,
2: I'll have a go at answering that. So, um, let's continue with the T-shaped analogy. Um, uh, there is, Having enough expertise to know what are good questions to ask is really important, and um, I would like to think that we can get to a point of having a, a conversation between peers who respect each other's expertise uh, and who have sufficient disciplinary um, disciplinary depth of their own to be able to 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 come at that that conversation well. Uh, and so, what that means is, yes, of course, we um, we as scientists need to know enough about policy to be able to ask really good good quality questions in the same way that we keep telling policy people that you need to know enough about science to be able to ask good questions
3: of us. I think that that's right. But I think there's challenges in this and there's challenges uh, in relation to um, again institutional dynamics so for example we have got policymakers who who move their jobs every two years uh, so the churn uh, within policy and that precludes often developing that knowledge within the policy domain to ask the questions so they're, so they're not necessarily informed research purchasers uh, and that's no reflection on their intellect it's just the fact that they continuously move and and their roles change can Consistently, and so um, that that's one restriction. Uh, where people do tend to stay in policy, you can sometimes get a relationship which is too trusting, and so so in fact the sort of critical analysis of what science or what research they need um, actually gets uh, subject to bias uh, because of personal relationships. And so there's somewhere in the middle of those two factors, uh, you know, a churn factor and a, a too much trust factor um, is a sweet spot, and we aren't very good at negotiating and identifying that sweet spot in the institution. In institutional sense. So I think we we do have to think um, uh, more than just about the individuals and we need to think about the institutional design, the institutional settings um, that research is playing into policy and policy plays into research. And and it's not simple. So so many years ago, I decided that uh, to be effective in terms of policy, I needed to actually occupy that space. And so I, I went into a science policy institution and um, and learnt a lot about what not to do. And uh, uh, because it's very easy to uh, do these things poorly, and uh, and there is a body of knowledge about how to do them well, but it's not. Uh, Necessarily well recognised within the science community, Uh, and there are people now. There's you know developing career streams for knowledge brokers and knowledge exchange people, um, which actually can reward people who do this really well. And we need to be using those sorts of people to connect us with um, the researchers with policy and vice versa. But it still you still need to have some uh, understanding of the nature of policy uh, and how research can play into that and, and the things that really annoy policymakers when researchers don't behave well.
0: Do you have a quick tip of what to do or what not to do?
3: Oh, well, you don't tell policymakers what to do this is a good one. So you, you'll be policy informing, not policy prescriptive is the standard language. And, and so, uh, policymakers—a uh, good policymaker—is ex- an extraordinary person in the ability to pull together a huge range of information, of which science um, and research-type information is only a small part of it. And so, their mental models, in in many cases, much more sophisticated uh, than we give them pre- credit for. Uh, and so, when a scientist comes in and says, "You should do this," it often really gets their back up.
0: Um, Okay, so let's just end this conversation by discussing the future. So on the one hand, science has been a driving force behind dramatic improvements in human well-being, in life expectancy, health, education, and not to mention all of the technology around us and all of the technology that is letting me record this podcast right now. But on the other hand, scientific knowledge is also behind many of the world's greatest challenges, whether it's the burning of fossil fuels, the invention of nuclear weapons or automated robots, threatening mass unemployment. But when you look ahead, do you think science will be a greater force for good or bad in the world? And are we moving more towards a scientific utopia or dystopia? Perhaps we'll start with Erin.
5: I think I'd start with the bad news, <laughs> which is that I saw some, some recent data showing that um, when you look at the information that's spread on Twitter, false information's travelling six times faster than true information, which is terrifying for a sci- from a science perspective in terms of how we're sharing information. You know, interestingly, some of the advice that's coming out about how to deal with false information is that people should just think more and be more careful about the way they process information. As a psychologist, I'd say that's reasonably risky because when people think about information, usually they test a hypothesis that they already believe is true. So... I think going forward, there's in my area of research and psychology more generally, there's this sort of push to think about different ways that we can help people to be more information literate going forward. And I think that's a really exciting direction that at least our science is going. um, And I think that will have positive effects more generally in, in the scientific community because it's much more than sort of consumption of political information, but it's also really relevant for the way we understand important science um, that's around us every day.
2: From my perspective, um, one of the things at its core, what what engineering is about is bringing technological trust at scale. That sounds kind of weird, but I mean, there's a reason why when you drive over the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you trust that you're not going to fall into the ocean, uh, which would be a bit different to if um, just a a bunch of three teenagers had gone and sticky taped a bit of um, uh, wood together across the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So that said, engineers uh, have, are the people who have made a number of these pieces of technology that that are now hitting scale and uh, driving us in uh, interesting directions. So um, I guess to me that's one of the reasons why I think there's there's a need right now to, to um, redefine what the engineering skills are because I don't think we're particularly well-equipped for uh, what's coming and information is actually a critical part of that. Um think about fitter, tw- fitter tweets Twitter feeds <laughs> think about Twitter feeds um, uh, one of the one of the things that sits behind that is a series of algorithms that were written by computer scientists who actually have limited understanding of um, the psychology of, of human brains other than uh, um, their principal goal which is to sell stuff uh, and so um, given that we now live in a highly connected world where in fact many of us are connected by Twitter or Facebook or um, Instagram or whatever it is, um, I think we need to be thinking much more carefully about what that, that looks like. So um, I would prefer, rather than taking a dystopian view, I would like prefer to suggest that we should be rolling our sleeves up and having a go at preventing the dystopia.
0: Susan, utopia or dystopia?
4: Uh, well, I think we, we need to aim high um, in getting the balance right. And I think for me, the most practical way of doing that is to really inform the public with proper science, no, explained at a you know, simple level, but true science, facts that we we're aware of, um, and to get it out there. Because, you know, the public, first of all, they're interested. But secondly, you know, they're the people who can provide some kind of balance to the decisions that are being made. Um, I think, you know, overall, there's a capacity to have a positive impact on what's good for the world and uh, what isn't. And the more we get the science message out there, e.g. plastic in our oceans, the more chance there is of actually getting a solution in place um, at the grassroots level we need to, like the rivers and so on, and actually making something happen. And, you know, I I have to wonder that, you know, when plastic was invented um, all those years ago, I mean, there wasn't any real knowledge of it in the public. We didn't have internet and, and people didn't know until it was sort of getting into place. And And I think nobody thought, you know, what what is going to be the long-term uh, repercussions of the in, introduction of this? Um, and these days we have the capacity to actually balance that by by getting the, the proper information out there um, in a way that's not prejudiced, um, you know, not pushing it one way or the other, but just so people know what's going on And there can be some kind of natural balances put in place. Um, You know, as I said with the the plastic stuff, there's grassroots things in India, people cleaning up beaches and uh, rivers in Indonesia and and people all over the world doing all sorts of stuff simply because they realize through uh, internet and other means that there's, there's a massive problem. And Mark, any final comments or thoughts?
3: Uh, Look, I'm I'm an optimist, and (laughs) and I think uh, um, the science and the sort of, uh, in a sense, the demonstrable truth, in the sense of how science deals with it, uh, will win in the end. Um, uh, It's a question of the long term game game, and uh, uh, which which is. Part of my first sort of comment, we do have to think long term here, and uh, the unfortunate thing is some of the um, sort of behaviors the the um, fake news type stuff which is going around uh, it just makes that an even longer game, so I think it 's just uh you know harder to to sort of get those messages across. But but the points that uh, were made just before, uh, which is about we should be smarter in terms of thinking about what the consequences are of some of the things uh, we can do, well, well, that actually is progressed by having interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary teams that actually can think through the full range of consequences rather than just the immediate technological ones. So I I think we are heading in those directions. I think we are broadly um, getting a, a much more... Uh, effective um, science policy discussion going and sometimes it goes forward sometimes it goes back Um, uh, and and I think there there are better understandings of how we can communicate science to to the broader public Um, uh, the Centre for Public Awareness of Science here in in ANU I think does a great job on that and uh, and gradually I think we will uh, win the war but it's just going to take a while.
0: So as National Science Week comes to an end and we celebrate science and all of the great things that has brought our world, there's still a lot of challenges and a lot of big questions and big things to think about moving forward and to make sure our future is sustainable and make sure we're living a great future. I'd just like to thank all of our guests for coming in today. So thank you, Susan, Eleanor, Mark and Erin for your time and enjoy National Science Week. Thank you. Thank you. you. Okay, so once again, a big thank you to all four of our science experts that we had today. And now I'm back with Sue to discuss our conversation we had earlier. Sue, what were your big takeaways from our conversation about science and about policy? Yeah,
1: so I mean, what a, a stellar cast of science experts we had, which was fantastic, and a great diversity in their backgrounds as well, which was. Uh, made the conversation so interesting. Um, oh, for me, I think, you know, the challenge that scientists have in communicating to policymakers, um, you know, it really brought home how difficult that challenge is, you know, when this, we, science can be so complicated. So we heard from Susan about how there was a need to be brief and to be clear and concise in communicating science. Um, But we heard from Erin about how the psychology of it is very challenging Um, you know, and how, how do we get across that complexity and nuance, particularly when we talk to policymakers, because um, simple messages aren't enough in a policy domain. So yeah, it really brought home to me that, the, you know, there is both communication challenges and challenges of accuracy around when you're communicating research and science.
0: And I think that's also not just a problem within science. I think communication and expressing ideas clearly, but concisely, but containing all the information that you want to contain is such a big problem. And I find personally, I don't understand economics at all. And I find that economic jargon is just so difficult to get my head around. And so you can see how within all the different disciplines, and especially in science, we need to think more about how we communicate ideas and how we express those to policy makers and to decision makers, because that's ultimately what's going to be changed and what's going to be affected.
1: I really enjoyed the discussion around diversity as well. You know, we asked about gender diversity, but I thought it was very interesting the way the conversation widened out to all aspects of diversity. Um, you know, I'm reflecting what you've just been saying. There's, um, you know, we need all those different world views that come from having diversity of people in a room. And I was very encouraged, really, to hear our fellow scientists talking about that. And it sounds like there's been uh, certainly on the gender diversity a lot of uh, uh, progress in terms of uh, getting women more interested in STEM subjects. I mean, it's still not where we would like it to be, but I think again, as some of the uh, speakers said, there's you know this is all a long game. And uh, I think you know on the question of uh, getting diversity and more women into uh, uh, STEM subjects, that there's things happening now which should show results in the future. So I found that very encouraging. Yeah.
0: And as Erin was saying about how getting women into STEM isn't enough, we need to retain those women. And that's just such a big thing, you know, especially with all of the dropout rates in university in general. How can we ensure that we're getting that diversity of opinion and making sure that that diversity stays through to, you know, doctoral and postdoctoral expertise. So yeah, those are really big topics and really big issues that we need to be thinking. And it reflects how, although we're just talking about science, how these challenges are reflective in all disciplines. But now we're just going to move on to some commentary about our previous policy forum pieces and some comments from our listeners. So we had one article on Policy Forum by Brock Bastian called Trapped in a Culture of Happiness, Why Policymakers Need to Encourage Us to Learn to Live with Negative Emotions. Now, this comment was from Amelia, and she says, If trying to promote and measure happiness is counterproductive, what other options do we have? Maybe we're better off avoiding the subjective measures of well-being altogether and going back to objective measures like wealth, health, and education. What do you think about that, Sue?
1: Um, Oh, it's a really challenging question. Um, I mean, I think that uh, we probably need to do both and continue to do both. So um, it's not about subjective measures or objective measures. I think if we want to have a really rounded sense of the well-being of society and individuals within society, then we uh, probably uh, need both subjective measures and objective measures. But there, you know, there is clearly uh, challenges, and it can be counterproductive, as we, you know, saw in the article, to measure these more subjective measures of well-being, like happiness. So there's not a there's not an easy answer. It's a good question.
0: Yeah, and I think we're like, as a society we're constantly striving towards happiness, but then are we losing sight of what that even means? What happiness means, and how much is that affecting our well-being as a whole? Mm-hmm. And then we had another comment from one of our recent national security podcasts, and this one was called Binary Bullets, How is Cyberspace Changing Warfare and Terrorism? It's an interesting pod, so make sure to check it out. We'll leave a link for that in the show notes. And Jamie's comment was, another type of cyber attack we'll probably start to see in the future is cyber blackmail of political leaders. This will only become a bigger problem as the social media generation starts to take power, all with embarrassing digital footprints somewhere on the internet that can be dredged up by savvy hackers. Is that a bit of a pessimistic Sue.
1: It's, it's another uh, reason why I think it's uh, difficult for people to go into politics these days. You know, there's that saying, who would be a politician? Uh, I, I think it's a very real risk that I um, think we're already seeing it happening. That you know things are, are brought up that happened ten ten years ago on on social media. It's something I think all political leaders will be very uh, wary of, and uh, something that all prospective. Political leaders uh, may be concerned about. So, yes, I think he's identified something that really is a, a, a live risk for politicians.
0: And it's definitely something very personal as well. You know, we're, we think about cyber attacks as nation against nation, but then this is, can be, cyber blackmail can become very personal. And if it's in the wrong hands, you know, who knows what might happen. So, those were just a couple of comments from one of our podcasts and one of our articles on Policy Forum. And if you had any thoughts, comments, questions, or feedback about any of our articles or any of our podcasts, be sure to hit us up. You can find us on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society or on Twitter where we are apps policy forum. Or you can always email us. Our email is podcast at policyforum.net. We'll be back next week with a podcast on irrigation and water policy. So stay tuned for that. Just wanted to thank Sue for being my co-host today. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Maya. See you next week.